And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be. Welcome to the other side of midnight, a night when obviously electronic gremlins are out stalking around in the dark in the land of enchantment. Sorry for that kind of uh, ragged opening. Well, tonight's show is going to be rather extraordinary, and it's been very specifically chosen to be a companion with last night's show. And I'm going to put all of you in the picture in a few minutes, but I want to open tonight with a very important request. A very good friend of ours personally and of the show and of Kinthea and myself and uh, Keith um, has fallen very ill. Um, Joseph Farrell, who runs the website called the Giza Death Star. I never quite understood why he called his website the Giza Death Star. I mean, I've read the book and I know all that, but it's kind of a strange take. Anyway, um, uh, last night, kind of in the middle of everything, I got an email from one of our mutual friends that Joseph had had a heart attack. And uh, it's one of those things where you're really taken aback because he's much too young to have gone through what I went through 20 plus years before. And so what I want to do is I want to send everybody to an update in Joseph's own word. He survived. Uh, according to the doctors, he had given his medical situation, his overall condition, he had about a 12% chance, uh, kind of like I did, of surviving. He has. He is um, in the hospital. He had open heart surgery. They put in, I believe they put in a stent um, prior to doing some other things. He's in the hospital. Um, he is in very, very serious condition. Um, and I want to tell you a little story because when this befell me 20 plus years ago, I had an angel who, who had appeared in my life. Her name was Robin. And she literally saved my life. And one of the things that she did was to get me, after the surgery, after I'd spent about a week in intensive care and then in the hospital room, and, you know, they get you up and they walk you right away so that you, you know, don't languish in bed and you continue with muscle tone and all that. Exercise is one of the medicines that is prescribed these days. Um, one of the things she was able to do is to get me into a program called hyperbaric medicine. And this is something that's critical for everyone who's listening out there. If you or someone you love, a parent, an elderly relative, uh, even sometimes not so elderly people, if you have a stroke or you have a heart attack and you're in recovery, you need to look for a website called ACAM, which is literally uh, the American College for Hyperbaric Medicine. Keep that in mind, A-C-H-M. Find that website. It will give you everything you need to know about a hyperbaric treatment. Now, for some of you, you may be familiar with this term associated with Michael Jackson and the idea that he slept in a hyperbaric chamber every night. Well, kind of put that all aside, you know, regardless of how Jackson used this modality. If you have a stroke or you have, God forbid, a heart attack, you need to find, you actually need to do it before the worst case scenario, the nearest hyperbaric chamber in your location, in your city, in your neighborhood, in your region. A lot of hospitals now uh, have them. They were they were very scarce 20 plus years ago when I had mine. But Robin found a facility and got me into it. And I had sessions. I'm trying to remember it was either two or three times per week. And what they would do is they would take me in and you would lie down in this chamber and they basically pump it full of oxygen at um, slightly elevated uh, pressures to normal uh, 14, you know, 0.7 PSI, atmospheric pressure at sea level, and you just lie there for an hour or so, and you do it like like homeo 
homeopathy. You do it periodically, like two or three times a week. For Joseph, who has been suffering from oxygen deprivation because of this chronic deteriorating you know, heart condition for years, it turns out, uh, he radically needs it. And uh, so if you're friends with Joseph, you need to all send him email. I sent him, you know, I tried to talk to him. He says he's too weak to talk on the phone. And for Joseph to be too weak to talk on the phone or to talk at all is, you know, it tells you how serious this condition is. For all you supporters and friends of Dr. Farrell out there, you need to send him an email and recommend strongly, urgently, strenuously that he get into a hyperbaric treatment facility as soon as possible. The earlier you get there, the earlier it's extraordinary literally transformative effects can take hold in terms of your overall body metabolism, in terms of your chemistry, your stress levels, etc., etc. It's basically hypersaturation of the body's cells with oxygen at a partial pressure that's equivalent to 14.7 PSI at sea level. And as you know, the atmosphere normally is only about 20%. So if you do that, I am living proof almost a quarter of a century later, it has a stunning, remarkably positive effect. Um, Before I went to Miami and before I met Robin and before uh, 20 plus years ago, I lived here in New Mexico, uh, actually here in Placidas, at about 6,500 feet above sea level. And if you're at an altitude, like over a mile high, which we are here, the partial pressure of oxygen is much less than it is at sea level. Just ordinary, you know, physics. I really doubted, given what the doctors were saying, that I would ever be able to return home, that I would be able to return to New Mexico or certainly live at this altitude um, because of the fact that my body, my cells were starved for oxygen. And uh, uh, the way Robin described the doctor is describing the status of my heart and the very, very low uh, ejection fraction, which is basically a measure of the efficiency of the heart pumping blood and all that. It was extraordinarily dismal. The prognosis was very, very grim. So she got me into this hyperbaric program uh, back in in Florida because I had the heart attack in, in Miami. And within weeks, I was doing everything I had done before. My energy level was back. And obviously, they don't, you know, stick something into you to look at your heart. But I know that when I came back to New Mexico and was able to walk and hike and chop wood, and I have not had a twinge in 20 plus, it's almost 25 now, years. This was 1999 when I had the heart attack. So uh, I strongly am recommending, and I wasn't able to do it over the phone. I had to do it in email, and obviously you can't be as persuasive in email as uh, you can be when you're talking to someone directly. So for all your, your colleagues out there, all the friends of Joseph, all the people who have followed his extraordinary research, which, if you've been following our own research vis-a-vis the communications and the Muamua and all that and ancient sacred sites, particularly the Giza Plateau, you know that it's much too soon to lose him. Now's when we need him more than ever. So send him emails. Have your friends send him emails recommending the hyperbaric treatments through ACAM. And ACAM people are incredibly helpful they want to provide this extraordinary new window on, on medical science, which is very overlooked by most of the mainstream medical community. It's more pervasive than it used to be, but it's still not is not something that your average doctor thinks of when someone has a stroke or a heart attack. So as a post-op recovery procedure, I cannot recommend it highly enough. You need to communicate to Joseph that regardless of what his doctor says, 
because his doctor may be totally ignorant of this this option, this opportunity, this extraordinary, so unsung, not many doctors realize it's a stunning breakthrough. Um, it's used for wound healing, and when you have, you know, heart surgery, that's a wound. Uh, you know, you don't do anything inside the body without creating scar tissue and all the things that come along. So hyperbaric treatments, hyper meaning beyond, baric for like barometer, pressure, hyperpressure, pure oxygen in what looks kind of like an old um, uh, um, artificial lung, uh, what they used to use for polio, except you don't have your head sticking out of it. You're in the entire chamber for about an hour. You can read, you can play with your phone, which most people do. Um, you can watch television, which most people do, and then they fall asleep. <laughs> anyway, that's what Joseph needs. And there are other people out there who have gone through heart procedures recently who also need it. Hint, hint. And if um, my example is not enough, just go to the Hyperbaric ACAM website and start patient testimonials. You will be amazed. Moving on. Um, last night, we announced on the show that the web deployment had reached a milestone on the 14th tetrahedral day, which was yesterday. They have deployed all the major elements of this extraordinarily complicated, extraordinarily expensive $10 billion and uh, counting uh, extraordinary telescope called the James Webb Space Telescope, which is on its way at a slow speed of about two-tenths of a mile per second. I misquoted the actual number last night trying to do the calculation in my head, but I, I was distracted. You guys, you know, I was distracted. So it will arrive at the end of the month at the L2 position. They will fire thrusters a few days before it gets there, so it kind of slows down gently and then go, goes into this very large halo called L2 point located about a million miles behind the Earth away from the sun. And it will function there according to their onboard fuel. And that's not taking into account the idea of visiting it with a future spacecraft. Elon, are you listening? And refueling the onboard fuel. But they think they have enough fuel, uh, even at present, for about 20 years. A generation of stunning breakthrough operation as this incredible very complicated, very elaborately gold-plated, literally gold-plated telescope uh, orbits in a halo orbit around the L2 point and explores every conceivable facet at the cutting edge of modern astrophysics, planetary science, and last but not least, delves into the question, who the heck are we? And are we alone in the universe, in the cosmos? Well, as you know, if you've been following our own work here at the Enterprise Mission for the last month or so, um, apparently we are not. And someone has been responding to our experiment, and we'll get into that shortly. Item number three is a, a kind of a, a sequenced item number two. This is the NASA website, basically, where is the telescope? Where is Webb? Um, and actually, Webb should have a... Double B. Oh, we've made a mistake there. That needs to be corrected. James Webb, two Bs. Anyway, if you click on that, um, either on the link or on the graphic, it takes you to a brilliantly interesting but very simple uh, website, which shows you in graphic form where the Webb telescope is tonight as it's making its way at two-tenths of a mile per second toward the L2 point. It shows its full deployment. Now, of course, uh, what's left is aligning all the mirrors, testing all the uh, uh, experiments. There are four major experiments, basically cameras, uh, looking at spectroscopy, uh, looking at imaging, infrared, and uh, you know related uh, uh, analysis technologies uh, on the spacecraft. And they have to wait for several weeks as the um, spacecraft and the telescope itself gets colder and colder behind this tennis court-sized five-layer sun shield 
that they were able to deploy by remote control when the spacecraft was about half a million miles away from Earth, again moving to the million-mile point uh, at the L2 position. Item number four. Now, this one is so weird because, as you know from listening to this show over the last month, we're making some really remarkable strides in ascertaining if there's anybody out there. We've gotten some remarkable results, which I'll go through momentarily for those of you who are new to the show. And in particular, it's kind of like an on-air briefing for my guest tonight who had not heard of what we were doing and probably does not realize that I asked him to be a guest specifically because his area of expertise fits perfectly into the bigger question, who the heck are we talking to? And if they tell us something really astonishing and weird and highly controversial, should we believe them? And that's going to be part and parcel of the conversation for the rest of the evening. Anyway, into all this, remember about a month ago, um, referring to item number four in Radio with Pictures, remember um, that the Chinese had announced that their little, you know, second U-2 rover, uh, U-2 in Chinese means Jade Rabbit, which is, of course, the um, uh, symbolic pet companion um, research assistant um, familiar of the Chinese goddess of the moon, Chang. Anyway, they sent Chang 3, uh, which was the first lander by the Chinese, to the front side of the moon, meaning the side of the moon that is aimed toward the Earth all the time. They sent Chang 4 uh, a couple of years ago to the far side of the moon, uh, opposite, it turns out, literally, uh, if you draw a line right through the core of the moon, to where Chang 3 was landed in Mari Imbrium, which is in the kind of upper left-hand corner of the moon if you look at the full moon as it's rising some night. Um, and Chang 3, I'm sorry, Chang 4's U-2-2, Jade Rabbit 2, has been trundling around as a little rover uh, exploring the far side in this crater uh, on the far side of the moon. Uh, thank you, thank you. Webb suddenly got its right B. Um, it's been trundling around, taking very interesting imagery um, and doing analyses of the rocks and soil and whatever. Well, about a month ago, the Chinese published through their uh, government news agencies and uh, their government space program, which is kind of like the Chinese version of NASA, a very peculiar picture which showed what looked to be like a little cubic thingy on the horizon, which we were told from the Chinese, was located about 260 feet away from the rover. And they actually even had a had a name for it, which the Western press mangled terribly. They called it, you know, a, a, a mystery hut. Whereas Robert Morningstar, who was one of our colleagues in this uh, Confederation of Enterprise Associates and Fellows and Researchers and and just kind of like, you know, friends. Um, he knows Mandarin, so he gave the correct translation. Apparently, the Chinese themselves call, call this little cubic thing on the horizon God's secret little house, which has all kinds of fascinating um, symbolic, ritual, and even theological overtones. Like, who could the Chinese be calling God on the moon with a little house that's supposed to be a secret? Anyway, we were told in that initial press release that it would take them several days to get there. And when I quickly read the release, I kind of, you know, as everybody else did apparently, mistook that for several Earth days. No, 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 no. The Chinese meant several lunar days. And as you may know or would remember, each lunar day is two Earth weeks long. So they said they would take several days to get there, several lunar days, so several months to get there. Well, apparently, according to the Chinese a couple of days ago on Friday, they're there. 
they've, they've moved the little rover at breakneck speed, you know, warp nine comes to mind, uh, up that hill to look down on, as you'll see if you click on item number four, uh, God's secret little house, and it turns out to be, wait for it, a bunny rabbit-shaped rock. Needless to say, and I've been saying this to all my colleagues kind of over the last couple of days, I think the story is a total fake. I mean, talk about fake news. From the Chinese Communist Party, I think this was some, as Ron Gerbron um, said elegantly, you know, yesterday, last night, whatever, some Chinese communist apparatchik, which is a term that derives from the old Soviet Communist Party, obviously kind of got caught up with where the Chinese rover mission was and said, well, we're going to put an end to this nonsense now and just put out a story and just had them pick a photo there and claim it was God's secret little house. The angles don't match. The distances don't match. The lighting doesn't match. In other words, nothing about this story rings true except that it's from the Chinese Communist Party and not from scientists involved in the mission. And we know from other reports having to do with a Chinese mission currently on Mars that there have been such dissension within the um, teams running uh, that mission that at one point they literally came to fistfight blows. They literally started attacking each other over some major element of, quote, scientific policy regarding the Chinese Zorong mission rover to the surface of the planet Mars. So is it beyond the realm that uh, the politics have radically intruded into the ultimate solution of the mystery of God's little secret house on the far side of the moon? Because frankly, if you look at the two photos, the initial release photo, and then what they're claiming is the the rabbit kind of resembled rock, they don't resemble each other really at all, even allowing for the vastly increased resolution uh, because you're so much closer ostensibly in the latest uh, China release uh, from the mission. Be that as it may, this is all background to our conversation tonight with my guest, uh, Paul Wallace, who is the perfect person to talk about a bunch of things having to do with what we've been engaged in uh, for the last month. So for those who are new to the show, and for Paul, who I don't think has been following what we've been doing, let me give you a thumbnail sketch. About a month ago, a bunch of us thought it would be a really cool idea to send a radio signal through a private amateur ham radio operator's antenna in northern Arizona to this interstellar visitor that came zipping through the solar system back in 2017, named by NASA Amuamua, which roughly translates first messenger from afar. Turns out, from all the mainstream science that we have done, or they have done, and we've done our own separate analysis, this thing was a really genuine interstellar visitor, meaning it zipped down into the solar system from the direction of Lyra at about 33 degrees to the ecliptic, which is the Earth's orbit around the sun, made a sharp left-hand turn around the sun at 195,000 miles per hour. Anybody notice anything interesting about that number? And then zipped out of the solar system uh, at the same excess velocity at which it entered toward the constellation of Pegasus, never to return, meaning it was moving faster than er than the sun's gravity could retain it in the solar system, even in a millions of years long, uh, very parabolic orbit. Okay, be that as it may, one of the weirdnesses of Oumuamua, which got the mainstream attention, is... It left faster than it arrived, which, of course, is impossible. Where did the energy come from? Initially, some folks said, oh, it's basically a comet and the jetting action of ices melting and all that exposed to sunlight 
are giving it a kind of a action-reaction effect. And like other comets, which change orbits somewhat due to this jetting action, it was merely getting a boost from the volatilization of, of solid ices melting under brutal sunlight that close to the sun. Not because none of the high-power telescopes, including the Keck and the Sierra Tololo telescopes and the very large telescope in Chile and all the others around the world, none of them detected as much as a trace of gases or a cometary tail or gas emissions or what are called outgassing from the object. It appeared to be a cold, naked object, much more reflective, by the way, when the right calculations were done, than any other natural object approaching the reflectivity of aluminum, like 90%. What natural object has 90% reflectivity in interstellar or interplanetary space? Answer, none. So, the mainstream, in person of uh, Dr. Abby Loeb at Harvard, who was then the director of the Harvard College Observatory, ventured in the mainstream press well after, months after we had ventured on this show based on our analysis of the numbers, that Oumuamua, this first messenger arriving from afar, um, was artificial. And our model was it could be what's called a Bracewell probe, meaning a, 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 basically an AI sent from another star to kind of come through the solar system and listen to see if there was anybody here, anybody who would develop radio. The problem with the Bracewell probe model is that as part of the model, uh, which was formulated by this engineer, Ronald Bracewell, back at Stanford in a paper in 1960, in order to trigger a Bracewell probe, it has to pick up active radio transmissions. And as far as we know, nobody bothered to send anything to Oumuamua in the mainstream, either the military or the Breakthrough Listen Project or any of those folks, none of them sent any messages to Oumuamua to this messenger from afar as it made its passage through the solar system. And why not? Well, we don't know why not. And when we come back on the other side of this break, we will tell you the rest as Paul Harvey used to say, of the story. You're on the other side of midnight. We're talking now about an interstellar communications project initiated by the Enterprise mission and spearheaded by this show, The Other Side of Midnight, which is now encompassing a lot of people all around the world. And next Saturday, we're going to talk about Phase 2. Tonight... We're going to talk about what we got in response to our radio call to Oumuamua, because that's why, among other things, Paul Wallace is here. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. It's funny because I think, you know, 
I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So like you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Anetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. And welcome back, everyone, for this Sunday night, January 9th, 2022. It still feels funny to say that, 2022. And we're already nine days in. Anyway, um, let me recap. On December 4th, we began this extraordinary experiment in alien ET communication. Remember, I don't do UFOs. The Enterprise mission has never done UFOs, and that's a very long story. We have done extraterrestrial artifacts. We found on NASA imagery and Japanese imagery and Russian imagery and Chinese imagery of the moon uh, and of Mars, all kinds of ancient alien ruins, in, in, you know, illustrating overwhelmingly that we are not the first. This solar system has been host to a myriad of previous high-tech and low-tech civilizations, particularly on Mars. But the mainstream does not, does not um, basically acknowledge that, uh, you know, any of this is real. So up until about a month ago, it was kind of our policy that we did not do UFOs. The interesting thing is that a major political development happening where UF now UFOs now are kind of like IFOs because the Department of Defense, as part of the recent Authorization Act signed by the president, now has a specific, acknowledgeable, you know, responsible bureau, which is responsible for researching and reporting to the American people on UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, or UFOs. And obviously, some of them are, shall we say, knowns as opposed to unknowns. So it was against this backdrop that uh, I kind of thought to myself, well, maybe it's time that we you know, move into the 20, 21st century. Maybe it's time that we take a gander at something which is very mainstream, i.e. communicating with something maybe like a Bracewell probe or something resembling um, my old friend Arthur C. Clarke's uh, brilliant series of novels, 
rendezvous with Rama, which actually is much more like what Oumuamua represented, an object coming out of the interstellar dark, zipping into the inner solar system, making a sharp left-hand turn, and then leaving, never to return, except, of course, when Rama, which, of course, I think Oumuamua should have been named, when Rama came through the system, uh, in Arthur's novelization, human spaceflight had reached the technology level where humans could actually pursue it, rendezvous with it, and enter it and find out who had built it and where they may have come from. At least they had that potential. I'm not going to spoil the story because you really need to read it, all right? We don't have that level of technology yet. At least we don't have it in the public domain. There's lots and lots of clues that we have a secret space program which can account for, again, UFOs as, a, as they appear in the sky to ordinary civilians. And it's very hard now to know which is which, whether you're dealing with a secret space program which has control of gravity, whether the stuff appearing over the Nimitz and over the Roosevelt, these uh, aircraft carrier battle groups back in the 2014 uh, period we're seeing and tracking on radar extraordinary vehicles doing extraordinary things that nothing on earth that we know of in the mainstream can can you know in any way shape or form imitate follow uh, model or duplicate and that includes china iran russia whatever whatever so the physics that i've been working with for the last 20 some years hyperdimensional physics as well as the data coming in, as well as the politics, the formation of an actual office under the Department of Defense to deal with these manifestations of a stunning technology, they all say that this could be ours, but it probably is not because our stuff would not be used this way. So that leads up to what happened when we began transmitting on the night of December 4th, and then every weekend thereafter through the Christmas weekend, because we got answers. We now have hours and hours and hours of recorded answers on radio frequencies corresponding to 144.1 megahertz and 432 megahertz. And we have them recorded, both in analog form and in digital form. And we're, as you heard last night, in our latest analyses that we've presented to the public, we're cracking the code. There are all kinds of numbers. There's all kinds of references to our own terrestrial history from someone. And we don't know it's Muamua because the signals did not come back from Muamua. They literally arrived within minutes of the beginning of the broadcasts, and they included a sequence of actual physical UFOs or UAPs or something, some kind of craft right over the antenna, photobombing the antenna literally in front of a muamua two and a half billion miles beyond in the dark against the stars. Um, so they could not be mistaken for anything else but intruders popping in and out of three-dimensional reality not traversing across the sky, but literally appearing and disappearing. And when you zoom in on them, as we have presented video showing this in the last several weeks, they are structured geometric objects. They are vehicles. They are craft. They are three-dimensional solid something. They're not just points of light in the sky. So the enormous, huge question, which is before the house tonight, and specifically before our very special guest, Paul Anthony Wallace, is simply this. Who the heck are we talking to, and what should we believe in terms of the answers so far that we have gotten? Let me give you a little background. Paul Wallace is a researcher, a speaker, an author of many books on the subject of spirituality and mysticism, he researches the world's mythologies for how they speak to our origins as a species and of our potential today as developing human beings. 
In the 80s and 90s, Paul's work centered on establishing foundations for new faith communities. And over the last 20 years, he's designed and delivered training for church ministers in the United Kingdom and Australia. In Australia, Paul has lectured on the history of religious thought and hermeneutics, the principles of interpreting texts, including the Bible. He has served as the Anglican Church uh, Archdeacon in the Australian Capital Territory, and currently he provides personal coaching to clients in leadership and as a practitioner of healing in the Christian tradition. He is also, and this is very synchronistic, a musician, a storyteller, an author, a mentor, a conscious breather, and a barefoot walker. So, Paul Wallace, come on down. You're on the other side of midnight. G'day, Richard. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. Well, did you get an earful? <laughs> that was quite an introduction. There's a lot going on. Yes, and you're the perfect guy I wanted on tonight to talk about it because you quoted to me something from, I think it was, uh, was it the Old or the New Testament? I didn't quite... It was from the New Testament. Okay, and it says... It's from 1 John 4 in the New Testament, and it was a piece of the, test the New Testament I rediscovered after I fell down the rabbit hole of research into paleo contact. And in my research, I rediscovered aspects of primitive Christianity that have been almost completely forgotten. And in this little verse in 1 John 4, the writer is saying that he fully expects the members of the churches at that time, the very early years of Christianity, to be in contact with other kinds of entity. Now, he never quite says what these entities are. Ah, he uses the word spirits, but he doesn't define whether these are interdimensional entities or if they are ancestral spirits or if they are beings that are as physical as you and me, but they communicate telepathically. He never says what these other entities are other than that you or I should be expecting to get communication from them. And rather than pin down who we're talking to, what the writer said was it's very important that you keep your sovereignty, keep your autonomy, and weigh up what you hear for yourself. Does it make sense? And he says in that passage, if, if any entity comes along and trash talks Jesus, don't take any notice of that one. <laughs> so the real point he's making is you keep your wits about you. You're a sovereign being. We're a sovereign species. Let's listen carefully to what we hear and think for ourselves what it means. Your latest book, which I found extraordinarily well titled, The Scars of Eden, and we could do six hours on that title alone. Um, That's a great idea. <laughs> I, 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 just, I just felt it was so appropriate to what we're dealing with because looked at from a non-theological perspective, through a non-theological lens, the human race is the... Uh, the are, 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 we are the descendants of all our history and mythology and folklore and kind of, you know, aggregate consciousness that come from however heck we have found ourselves on this planet subject to these incredible stories of our origins, our in interactions with the ineffable, with folks beyond the planet, with God's and goddesses, et cetera, et cetera. And in, amongst all those, the idea of extraterrestrials, up until relatively recently, seems to be part and parcel of the human story. Um, we, we have a colleague, uh, Michael Hill, who has a great line. He says that he has had contact with people who were not from here. Well, the history of humanity appears to be a contact with folks, people, entities, consciousness not from here and our ongoing experiment is only the latest and given that I have this kind of scientific side of me I want to know who we're talking to and why they're talking to us and why they're talking to us now so the scars of Eden as the title implies implies that 
the human race has been scarred by this origin connection story. And I'm kind of curious, how did you wind up there? And what did you write about earlier that led you to this latest work? Well, you see, people know me today because I write in the area of uh, paleo contact, escaping from Eden and the scars of Eden are all about the theory of paleo contact, the theory that our ancestors in the deep past had contact with other civilizations and were even colonized by them. But my route there kind of surprises people because, as you said, Richard, my background is in the world of Christian ministry. I was for 33 years in church-based ministry as a church doctor, theological educator, archdeacon for the Anglican Church in Australia. And through all that work, I was deeply involved in interpreting the Bible. And part of what I trained pastors in was how to interpret ancient texts. How do you get out of them what the writers intended you to get from them? And then what do you do with those messages? And curiously, that was my route into the world of paleo contact. In my teaching of students, I teach them to do something we would call form criticism, which is where you ask of every text, what kind of literature is this that I'm looking at? And then we did source criticism. Where did these stories come from? And how do these versions differ from the originals? And then you always ask the linguistic question, what do the words actually mean? Those are the questions you ask to drill down into the texts. And it was simply through asking those questions that I began to realize that there is another story of human origins that's hidden in plain sight in the texts of the Bible. Now, anyone who's read the Bible, even a children's Bible to a child, will realize that there are some funny things, some oddities, some anomalies about the translations, the stories we tell from those texts. So if you sit down with the book of Genesis and, uh, you know, uh, a four-year-old, and you come to the verse that says, let us make, the four-year-old will say, who's the us? Who's God talking about? If there's only him. Who's the us? Let us make the humans to look like one of us. Well, one of whom? Get to the story of the flood. The four-year-old will say, what, well, God killed everybody? And then you have to explain why the God of love can do genocide, and it's perfectly all right. So on and so forth. Mm. Genesis 3, you have the death penalty for eating a piece of fruit, and the four-year-old will say, couldn't God see that was going to happen? So these were some of the anomalies that any parent struggles with if they read the Bible to a child, any preacher struggles with if they're preaching to a church, and any theological educator struggles with if they're training pastors to preach from the Scriptures. And for me, the key to it was getting the time to go back to these questions, realize that they are all translation issues, and drill down into the translation questions. And it was a, a stroke of good fortune, I could say, when uh, I was injured in an ultimate Frisbee match, and it gave me some convalescent time to sit down with the texts and get back to the root meanings of some really key words. And when I did that, what became clear to me was that the stories of beginnings in the Bible are actually summary forms of earlier stories that were told by the ancient Sumerians, Babylonians, Arcadians, and Assyrians. And their stories were stories of paleocontact, stories of our ancestors being governed over by visiting ET civilizations, and a plurality of them who were often in conflict with one another over how Project Humanity should be governed. And as I read those stories of the conflicts and saw them echoing in the Bible, I realized we are in the same conflicts today. The same struggles are being struggled. And it raises the question of, in what company are we currently living in this corner of the cosmos? Do you distinguish between... Um what I would call um, the kind of the Stargate SG-1 model uh, where you have, you know, ETs that meddle in the nursery and, you know, a an all-encompassing, you know, cosmic, multidimensional uh, creator god who basically kind of lets this stuff happen because it's part of some larger plan. 
Well, I must say that what I've discovered in my journeys in paleo contact have really forced me to reframe a lot of my thinking about God and, and what ah. we mean by God. God is a really loaded word. <laughs> you think? <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as you use the word God, all sorts of programs snap on in people's minds if they've gone through catechesis or religious education or grown up in any culture with any mainstream religion with a God figure. There are all these associated ideas that just sort of snap into place. And it can be a very, very unhelpful word for that reason. But something that began opening the picture up for me was to realize that the very anthropomorphic idea of God that a lot of people have, you know, basically the king of the universe who pulls all the strings, that really wasn't the idea of God that, for instance, the early Christians began with. If you go back to the beginning and listen to writers like Clement of Alexandria or Origen or Justin Martyr, you'll realize they had a much bigger, more cosmic idea of God. Hmm. There's a very informative moment in the book of Acts when the Apostle Paul, who's often referred to as the architect of Christianity, has to describe... This is the guy who had the conversion on the way to Damascus, that guy. On the road to Damascus, the very same. So he finds himself in Athens, and so he's preaching to a crowd who are, are not Christians, they're not Jewish, so he has to describe from scratch what he means by God. Mm. And he says this, he says, by God I mean the source of the cosmos and everything in it, that in which we all live and move and have our being. And what's interesting about that are the implications that our intelligence, yours or mine, is a participation in source intelligence, divine intelligence. Our consciousness is a participation in source consciousness. Our very being. So we're is a, a fractal part of his exactly. God. And that word fractal is superb because the Apostle Paul was a huge fan of Plato, mm. who wrote half a millennium before Jesus. And when Plato mapped out his idea of God, I, I realized this was the idea the Apostle Paul and these early Christian leaders had in their mind. In Plato's mind, in the beginning, was what we would call a unified field of consciousness. And the consciousness precedes the material universe. He then says, to use the language you've just offered, that that unified field of consciousness fractalized to form the material universe so that consciousness could experience itself. And our existence as conscious material beings are all aspects of that self-discovery. And so that old model of God as an individual or God as a personality or the king of the universe and we're all his subjects is so crude as to be almost irrelevant. This is the much more cosmic picture which people like Plato and the Apostle Paul in our ancestral past were dealing with. And I think it helps us to get back to some of that more open, more cosmic kind of thinking. Well, when we almost look at the evolution of, of theology over the last several, you know, couple thousand years and say it's devolved from this very elevated and synoptic perspective way back then. Yes, it has devolved. I quite agree. And it's not been by accident. Oh. It's, it's really been a very politicized process of narrowing what originally was a kaleidoscope of philosophies and theologies into this narrow orthodoxy, which essentially gives a religious gloss to whatever form of feudalism you're wishing to run. But, you know, you look at the Roman Empire, it's the classic example, and it's it's the prototypical example, where they massage Christianity into this religion of worship and obedience that has God and the emperor at the top, the senators and the bishops in the middle, and the compliant, obedient people at the bottom. And Which that is was incredibly really... mirrored by the church then, the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> That's really where those structures came from. It really is Roman imperial feudalism that got pushed into Christianity as the empire began running the show, building the buildings and interfering in 
theological decisions. And I say that as a recovering Catholic. <clears throat> I quite understand. <laughs> well, the Anglicans are only one, you know, one, you know, I blink one away. Degree, one degree removed. That's yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I remember vividly thinking one morning when I was like 10 about this kind of stuff. And I was sitting on the porch in Lewistown, Maryland, looking across the street at the Methodist church where the church fathers had come into our restaurant and basically tried to run my parents out of town because we served people of, of not the same color. And they would ring oh. the, the church bell 140 times on, on, on Sunday morning to drive our uh, bed and breakfast tourists away, truckers and people, you know, trying to sleep late because they'd been traveling and all that. So I, I'm sitting there one morning and I'm looking at this Methodist church, which to me was the personification of not God, but the other guy. And I'm thinking, yes. I wonder why I really love the Catholic church so much. And I realized it was because of the music and the pageantry and the, and the chants and the the pomp and the circumstance, um, which was unparalleled then and is unparalleled now. I mean, that music really gets to the heart of the soul of of yes. humans. Yes, it can be very beautiful, and there are beautiful aspects to Catholic spirituality. But through history, we see that if you get your image of God a little bit distorted, it distorts everything. Mm -hmm. If you have a God who's a little bit genocidal, then it creates people who are a little bit genocidal. And unfortunately, including the ones you've just described, in the name of God, because of that distortion. And in my book, Escaping from Eden, I argue that that confusion has arisen because we've interpreted ancient stories of ET contact with stories about God. How, and it's brought about an image of God that's quite wrong. How uh, We're actually coming to the uh, uh, top of the hour here, so I will hold my question. I mean, I've got lots of questions this morning <laughs> as we get back to uh, to where we are with, with all of this, because it's it, to me, it's it's such an extraordinary journey that we've embarked on because apparently we are in touch with some kind of consciousness. And given the example of Stargate SG-1 and, you know, given the idea that there can be folks that pretend to be God and mm -hmm. we've had a literature which has, you know, moved us in that direction where we're looking for the guy in the long white beard that basically controls us for it to whom we owe you know thousand percent sovereignty no questions don't ask how high to jump that kind of thing uh who we're talking to to me is not a trivial question my guest this morning is theologian among other things uh paul wallace writer author um mythologist researcher and an asker, an asker, I'll do that right, of deep questions, some of which we will be able to get to this morning, and most of which we will have to relegate to another day, another night, and another time, because there are more questions piling up at the moment than answers. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. for listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only please support the show by subscribing to club 19.5 and join our very interesting community to do that please visit the website the other side of midnight.com and click on the join club 19.5 link in the left hand column as a club 19.5 member you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. 
As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>